So welcome to the Talking, Learning and Teaching podcast. Once again, we're doing something a little bit different. We've got a vodcast because I felt it was important that we showed some visuals alongside the audio that you're going to hear uh, as part of this conversation. On the show today, we've got an old friend of the podcast. We've got Steve Nordmark, formerly of CAST, the world's leading UDL organisation. Steve is now founder and consultant for LC Insight, which is an organisation that supports people to intelligently and intentionally leverage technology to increase effectiveness of teachers and maximise personalisation for learners. Steve, welcome to the show. We've got you on today to talk about AI in education. Uh, I'm really looking forward to to your insights. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. I'm glad that you reached out and uh, invited me again. Happy to do this. And yeah, so LC Insight, uh, that's actually short for Learning Community Insight. So I created that uh, LLC, my business, uh, consulting business, back about 10 years ago, roughly. Uh, so I didn't do that while I was at CAST, but it's been nice for me to keep that thread and and I've certainly focused on universal design for learning. And then the other piece that I've been focusing on is competency-based learning. And uh, that all flows into personalization. I think those are two frameworks that have a big part of flowing into personalization opportunities. And obviously for today's conversation, AI, a huge twist on the technology aspect of personalization and competency-based learning. Absolutely. And I think it would be of you know, remiss of me, certainly on this podcast, not to explore with people like yourself um, the possibilities for AI in education. Um, we've already done one episode with James Basham, which focused specifically on AI in special educational needs uh, contexts. Um, so it'd be good to sort of broaden that out a little bit today and, and learn from yourself. Yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, so I did take a prompt from you, prepared some slides. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen. Okay, thanks, Steve. And we can use that as a uh, backdrop for our conversation. So the other thing that I'll point out is uh, this set of slides I created uh, with a tool that's called beautiful.ai. Uh, so it is a nice AI tool to help support creating presentation slides. Uh, that's all wonderful and good, but one of the detriments uh, is that from an accessibility perspective, doesn't do a good job at all. <laughs> so it's nice for me to be able to do this uh, and quickly adapt these slides, but it's the type of thing where I still have to download it into PowerPoint if I need to share these slides out and make sure they're accessible. Yeah, I mean, great sort of start by uh, thinking about even the slides have, have been produced there uh, with the with the help of AI. So um, are you sitting comfortably then, Steve? Shall we begin yeah. our, our conversation? So my first question is, you know, for how long have we been using AI tools in education? Because, you know, I hear that they've been around for a long time, but it seems like the big sort of um, excitement about AI is something that's very recent. So just how long have those AI tools actually been available to us? Yeah, well, you know, we've been talking about adaptive learning systems and intelligent tutoring systems, personalized learning recommendation engines and the like for many years. But we haven't seen much of it truly implemented in education until roughly about the 2010s. I created uh, this uh, this one slide here that's kind of a random set of nodes along a 
AI journey. Uh, you know, going back to the early 2000s, I actually worked on a language and reading education solution that used talking software to help students uh, who are having difficulty with reading. We developed a centralized dashboard that we referred to as an intelligent tutor, and that's a common term that you actually hear a lot in AI-based uh, systems. So in my case, it was gathering and displaying insights for educators, flagging learners who were experiencing um, more difficulty than others, and helping one educator serve a group of struggling readers and feeling like they were watching over the shoulder of each of those learners, much like a tutor would do in helping an individual learner. So that intelligent tutor that we created was based on a specific set of predefined rules reviewing a very specific set of tasks. Some would argue that that's a very rudimentary version of a narrow AI or a weak AI. However, some of the more common references to narrow AI today are speech recognition systems like Siri, Alexa. So Siri was released in 2010 as an app and later acquired by Apple and integrated into its operating system. Everybody's very familiar with that. But Siri was based on decades of research uh, in AI at uh, SRI. And Alexa was released in 2014 and likely was based on a significantly, uh, a significant number of years of AI research itself. So when I was working on those reading education solutions, that intelligent tutor I referenced, we had envisioned a digital assistant that would allow students to read to it and would evaluate the fluency of the students, students reading, providing an indication of their understanding and command of the language and vocabulary. Those types of narrow AI uh, solutions do exist today. You see them in various uh, products uh, like intelligent tutoring systems, personalized learning platforms, and adaptive learning software that are self-paced applications. Typically, they focused on a specific subject and a set of grade level content and used that to analyze student responses, adjust the content pathways and difficulty levels. You know, many people certainly in the US are familiar with Carnegie Learning and their applications of AI within their software. And I found it interesting, Carnegie Learning was founded in 1998 and just last month they re released something that they call Live Hint AI based on a large language model that they developed using 25 years of data that they've collected on student use of their software solutions. So it just kind of gives you that kind of flavor of overall uh, what's been happening uh, over time. And one of the other things that I wanted to point out is, you know, I mentioned narrow uh, or weak AI. Uh, you know, it's only recently with the release of ChatGPT that the general public has our eyes open to what people call generative AI that creates content based on large language models. And then there's general or strong AI, which gets into a little more scary aspects of AI technology that can, quote unquote, do things that humans can do. So, you know, narrow AI may be like a robot programmed to do something like chess, very specific tasks. Uh, can't adapt to new situations. Generative AI, more like an artist who can create paintings, musics, and even poems. It's not human, right? It's a computer program uh, that uses that AI to generate that content. 
and it can create new things, but it doesn't have the same understanding or reasoning abilities uh, as a human. Whereas general AI, uh, the way it's envisioned, is like a robot that can do anything a human can do, like thinking, learning. And then they even talk about feeling emotions, which gets a little bit scary, right? Uh, but, you know, it wouldn't, it, it would be able to understand and adapt to any situation like a human, but we're not there yet. And it's interesting to think about how long is it going to take for us to, to get to that point. Well, as we think about the pace of AI, one of the things I pulled up when I was doing research was this graph, which showed the pace of AI patents. So as you look at the pace of those patents, even going back a year before the release of OpenAI's ChatGPT, we see this dramatic increase over the last few years. I don't have the latest data from 22 and 23, but I'd imagine with the increased noise around OpenAI and large language models that we'd see a similar increase, a rapid dramatic increase in those. So, I mean, it, it would seem then that it's been around a long time. I mean, I, I mean, I, I was quite surprised there when you said that Siri had been around since 2010. Um, and also, I think you said, Alexa, was it 2014? 2014, feels, yeah. Yeah, it feels like it's it's less time than that. So they've actually, I mean, those sorts of things, everybody uses them, don't they? And they've just become a, a, a part of, of, of how we live our lives now. I mean, most households have some sort of Alexa type device and many, many people obviously have an iPhone with Siri, etc. So they've obviously been around a lot longer than we think. Um, I mean, it's interesting that I really like that, you know, talking about sort of strong and general AI, generative AI, etc. So I mean, it, it seems like we're not at the Terminator level just yet, but it, it might be it might be something in the future that that comes, uh, you know, comes down the line. Yeah. And, you know, as I do research on this, there's there's certainly some, quote unquote, uh, scarier viewpoints that you see and uh you know, one of the things that we as humans have to make sure we do is to make sure that we're monitoring that ethical, uh, you know, non-biased relationship that we have with technology and and think about it as not human, but as technology and as a support. Yeah, I think I think that's the key thing, isn't it? I think certainly in my conversations with colleagues about about AI, it's it's that balance, isn't it? Making sure it's used in a supportive way, um, and ensuring that it's done in that way in a, in a more ethical fashion. So I mean, we we yeah. might even under you know unpick some of that stuff a little bit later on. I mean, in terms of the next question, I mean, how can we encourage students to use AI as part of their approach to study? Do you think? Yeah, well, you know. As you think about using AI for studies, first, I believe it's important for us to ensure students have an understanding of of how AI works. Right? We can't we can't think of it as just magic. They they won't be able to critically evaluate it as a tool to support their learning process if they think of it as magic. You know, and ultimately, at this point in the evolution of AI, it's an advanced data processing tool. Now, generative AI does create but it's, it's based on that advanced data processing uh, as they've trained it. So one of my favorite analogies that I've heard came from Chris Deedy. Chris is a professor and senior research fellow at Harvard's Graduate School of Education. He's fairly well known, 
great guy. And, and Chris, I, I saw one of his presentations and uh, you can go out and I think, yeah, I have the link here on the slide. Uh, there's a uh, YouTube video of his presentation and he uses the analogy where he compares the human AI relationship to what we saw in Star Trek Next Generation, for any of you that have seen that show, where Captain Picard, right, he's the captain of the starship, he's the human leader of that starship, whereas Data, who's an, actually an android, uh, is a machine. So Chris Deedy referenced the complementary roles of judgment that we see in the human leader, Captain Picard, to the reckoning, as he refers to it, or data processing expertise of data, who was Captain Picard's assistant. So Chris refers to this as intelligence augmentation. So data, the Android machine, provides the data analysis to support fast calculative predictions, whereas Captain Picard applies the practical wisdom that's required for that unique human judgment. So we should be encouraging students to leverage the power of AI to scan vast amounts of data quickly, but ultimately they should be learning from and making the judgments themselves, given that data, right? So using another analogy that we're a lot more familiar with in today's education, you can think of AI tools like a calculator. The student has to understand the math principles to effectively use and interpret the data from the calculator but they're encouraged to use it to speed up the process of their calculations, frees them up to dive deeper into deeper levels of learning because the calculator is doing those lower level data processing for them. In other words, we should encourage students to use AI as a tool to intelligently augment the data processing in order to drive toward higher levels of analysis, evaluation, and creativity at higher levels of Bloom's taxonomy. Students shouldn't simply rely on AI as the final answer. Instead, they should rely on it as an efficient source of data and research processing, you know, providing a platform for deeper learning. That was a, a, a fabulous answer to that question, Steve. I mean, I really like the, the one with Captain Picard there, kind of, it, 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 it's about striking that balance, isn't it? Kind of, you know, you talked about data being the kind of data-driven information processing that's providing that information, whereas Captain Picard's got the sort of the wisdom, the emotional intelligence, if you like, that the machine doesn't have. And it's about that balance of, of both sides, isn't it? Which I kind of like. The other thing I really liked about this, you mentioned Bloom's taxonomy there. And obviously in higher education contexts, we're very sort of um, keen on our students to develop those higher order cognitive skills, the evaluation, the synthesis, the creativity, etc. And I suppose some of the concerns have been that if there are machines to do that for us then it might affect our ability to apply those skills but I think you really did explain brilliantly how we can still develop those skills in a really deep way and in an effective way but leveraging AI for that particular purpose so no I I, I really I really like that thank you for that um, yeah absolutely no no it, it, definitely I mean in terms of next questions I mean what and how do we need to be teaching in the future in view of AI and its capabilities? I mean, I'm a teacher and I teach teachers. So, you know, what are the kind of things that I need to be saying to my trainee teachers about the use of AI from a teaching perspective? Yeah, well, I, one of the things that I, I started thinking about, you know, maybe about half a year ago is, 
I, I focus on the inappropriate uses of assessment that we use in education and more of the rudimentary forms of assessment as opposed to more of the formative. You know, we use a lot of summative assessment uh, as a final qualifier as opposed to focusing on the formative to help learning as a process. So I, my hope, and I honestly believe the recent buzz around AI and its capabilities will serve as a Trojan horse of sorts, driving us toward more real world, experiential, project and problem-based and competency-based or mastery-based learning. Uh, you know, I, I just, I hope, right, that we do use this as an impetus, a greater impetus to move away from those rudimentary focus on facts uh, and seat time in a classroom and, and focus more on authentic demonstrations of knowledge and skills and learning environments focused on real-world scenarios. There should be a greater emphasis on guiding students and building their agency with developing both their individual and collaborative learning and problem-solving skills. Again, developing the uniquely human qualities that move up you know, higher in Bloom's taxonomy. We should be moving away from the abstraction of segmented subject area learning where maths, language arts, social studies, sciences are separated out all the time. That probably occurs less in higher ed than it does in, in uh, you know, secondary learning or even earlier elementary age learning, but it still occurs. And I'm not arguing that we should avoid teaching students the basics of language and numeracy as they move forward. I'm just saying that we should recognize that it's best suited in an integrated format. You know, for example, if AI can quickly gather data and information for a research paper, or in support of a proposed solution to a problem, then the goal of learning should not be on the data gathering. It should be on the purpose of the data gathering, which is focusing on understanding the review, the proposed solutions to real world scenarios, and hopefully a purpose that has real world context that makes sense and is of interest to those learners. So, you know, if we use Chris Deedy's analogy regarding intelligence augmentation, we should focus education on developing the unique, those unique human capacities of practical wisdom and judgment and developing solutions given our unique human understanding of ethics, communities, culture, neurodiversity, personal interactions and feelings, et cetera, while leveraging the amazing, what he refers to as reckoning capabilities of AI that are super efficient on data gathering and analysis. You know, we should not focus education just on deepening content knowledge. It's still important, but we should focus education on judgment and decision-making based on that content knowledge. So one could argue that current summative tests focus more on reckoning skills than that AI is better suited to do. So, you know, we already hear a lot about, uh, you know, professors struggling with essay-based assignments when AI is generating things like ChatGPT or generating decent essays. And this whole, you know, trying to find the, the ability to detect it, did they just copy it straight out of ChatGPT? Whereas, you know, we need to move from those more rudimentary forms of evaluation 
and toward a greater promotion of what we often refer to as 21st century skills like judgment and decision making and active learning and complex problem solving, systems analysis, critical thinking and collaboration. Well, my first response to that is is here, here. I, I couldn't agree more with, with all of what you said there. I mean, particularly around assessment. And I think assessment has been a, an area of concern, isn't it? It's certainly since chat GPT was launched, you know, this idea that students were able to get their essays written through the, the software and then submit them and pass them off as their own, et cetera. But it kind of raises questions, doesn't it, as you as you rightly uh, said there about, you know, the the how fit for purpose many of these summative assessment methods actually are and whether they actually are an effective and authentic measure of, of learning in, in various contexts. The bit you mentioned there about the integrated aspects, um, absolutely. I think even in higher education, as you rightly said, we sometimes compartmentalise um, various subject areas and various uh, topic areas that, that would benefit from, from that integration, particularly from an assessment perspective. So, yeah, I, 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 I've often felt since the kind of chat GPT boom, if you like, um, that this could be a good thing for assessment because we're going to have to think a little bit more intelligently about how we assess learning in, in different contexts rather than falling back on the sort of tried and tested methods that we continue to use just because we've always used them. You know, that seems to be the only the only rationale. Yeah. I mean, again, stick sticking with the idea of teaching. I mean, what can AI do that we can't as teachers and vice versa? What can we do as teachers that AI currently can't do? Yeah, uh, it's a it's a great question. And, and you know, it's going to be that ongoing struggle because there is that that kind of fear. You know, is it, am I going to be replaced as a teacher? The, sh the answer is no. Right. It's just it's that constant evolution of of what we are doing as educators and what we prioritize in our system that is important for our learners to demonstrate capacity and, and strength of, strength with. So, you know, just ongoing, it that will evolve, right? So what I, what I think in answer to that question though, one of the first things that we must ensure that we carefully review is that there's, you know, potential judgment and ethical bias in uh, in anything, right? We have it as humans, but you know that our judgment is uniquely human. Uh, AI systems are not capable of that, and might in fact exacerbate those biases if not designed well. You know, again, I'm not saying that humans don't have bias. I'm just emphasizing that. We have to be clear that the AI models can potentially perpetuate those stereotypes and discrimination because they can't adjust like a human can uh, on the fly. They're based on a predefined model that's already been set and could have bias built into it based on the rules that they had and the set of data that they were using uh, to generate it. So, uh, Something happened here. I actually clicked on the link as I go to the next slide. Um, you know, but if we if we take that glass half full perspective uh, and the power of AI, we know that AI is capable of personalization and scale 24 seven. Right. We have that round clock, round the clock availability in ways that humans can't achieve. So similar to my example of the intelligent tutor, where the 
software I had designed was monitoring the performance of all those learners in that in those language and reading lessons. AI can perform functions that can simulate an individual tutor for each student. And in that capacity, AI can provide more immediate and adaptive feedback for multiple learners at the same time. That's just, it's not possible for a human to do that. And AI can shrink that feedback loop, reducing the time horizon for those formative feedback loops. So back when I was creating that, that language and reading software, I was actually using an interactive multimedia software coding platform. And the nice thing about it was it gave me the opportunity to instantly see the results of what I was coding. So I could actually see the screen as a learner would experience it. So I had that rapid formative feedback, which enabled me to develop, in theory, more user-friendly software much more rapidly. So similarly, in an education setting, if a student is writing a paper to demonstrate their knowledge and skill, and an AI tool can assist the student with some formative feedback that quickly recommends corrections or other options, and then in turn, uh, that student can use that to interpret and apply those recommendations. Yet, even given those amazing capabilities of quickly gathering insights on data and making suggestions, AI does not have our unique human capabilities for social and emotional connection, depth of understanding within a cultural context, judgment, intuition, and decision-making within an interpersonal connection that emphasizes empathy, creativity, and critical thinking, ethical and moral guidance, and motivation and inspiration based on that personal connection. It's just it doesn't have that, and that is uniquely human. So as we think about the capabilities of complementing that intelligence augmentation from Chris Deedy's analogy, the educator, in theory, should be able to focus more on building those higher-level skills and focusing on developing those as opposed to having to focus on the development of the lower-level skills. So, you know... To emphasize the interesting nuance to this question, uh, chat GPT can be asked to answer this question and intelligently reply, and this is what I got, unique human qualities of empathy, adaptability, creativity, and moral guidance are fundamental in shaping well-rounded individuals and are currently challenging for AI to fully replicate. I thought... It was pretty interesting that that word challenging is there uh, as opposed to are currently not possible. Uh, so it's interesting to think about the ongoing evolution. But at this point, right, those are unique human capacities. And what we must remember is that AI, this answer here displayed on the screen, it's produced on a large language model that was created by humans and based on internet data that was authored by humans over years, AI didn't create this completely on its own. So it's synthesized from human-produced content and, and human-produced content that it was trained to analyze. So, you know, that must be clear to students and educators. You know, we're the creative minds generating the content, whereas AI is efficiently gathering and synthesizing the data.
Yeah, that, I mean, that was really interesting to me because I do quite a bit on the emotional dimension of learning and the emotional climate of the classroom and how that can impact upon learning. Obviously, a, a big part of UDL is the ability to self-regulate from a, an engagement perspective. And, you know, that what's, that's what helps a learner to persist even in the face of challenge. And I think my own view, which indeed is probably a biased view, is that we need to do more work around that emotional dimension of learning. But with the advent of of AI and, and, and things like chat GPT, it might provide us with the outlet to actually think more about the emotional capabilities of humans and the importance that those emotional capabilities actually play in learning effectively um, and, and, and regulating our emotions and, and getting interested in things and also supporting others as well. So I think that's something that will be really, really interesting to, to kind of see moving forward. I mean, yeah. and playing off of that, Kevin, I, I read something uh, earlier this morning was talking about one person had a more it was someone recalling a conversation with a colleague and, and she indicated that her colleague said in a more dystopian view that uh, some some of us will seek AI for that social comfort. You know, there's even been movies about that type of thing. But she took more of a glass half full look at it and said, yeah, but maybe it, it can actually help us negotiate more real and deep conversations with our fellow humans. So again, it's it's all the way that you're looking at it. And I would choose to take that more glass half full look and certainly avoid that uh, dystopian view of just diving into AI and letting it, quote unquote, become our social activity. Absolutely. I mean, it, it, my mind then went to that film um, Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams where he's a robot, isn't he? And, and effectively the humans start to turn to him for a little bit of comfort and he wants to become human. And it just got me thinking about the whole journey that we might be on with 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 AI moving forward. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think we've reached the final question. Um, and that is, what are the benefits of AI to learning? Yeah. And uh, uh, yeah, I like this graphic. It, it showed me something that, you know, is uniquely human. Right. Uh, but at the same time, it had kind of a flavor of technology to it. So that's I, this this particular graphic really appealed to me because I do like that intelligence augmentation context that Christy emphasized. So, you know, when we think about applications of AI, there's there's plenty that already exist today and will continue to evolve. Uh, personalized learning, adaptive learning, intelligent tutoring systems, automated assessment and feedback, and you know, in particular on that automated assessment and feedback like we were talking about, hopefully there's that opportunity, you know, as an example, maybe you can imagine an educator, an educator who's who's helping her students develop writing skills. The educator's got a stack of ungraded essays, uh, you know, introduce AI assessment engine into that that can quickly and accurately help assess students' work, and it may not provide the nuanced feedback on creativity and originality, but it frees that educator up uh, to be able to do that while it's focusing more on the structure and the word choice and grammar. Uh, so it gives that educator the opportunity to have more freedom to provide those higher level evaluations on creativity and, and you know, get at the essence of hopefully why she created that assignment in the first place. Um, you know, Based on what we've already seen uh, from AI, 
based software and claims of AI researchers, plenty of benefits. One of the things that is a more kind of a newer comment, we refer to nudges. That's, you know, as you think about kind of giving someone a nudge, right? You give them a little elbow, uh, AI based education, those nudges are a way for the machine analysis to give a little push in the right direction as opposed to giving the answer. So the learners still responsible for traversing that learning, uh, that pathway, but AI support is kind of like a guardrail keeping us from steering off those pathways. And I suppose, you know, there is that, that benefit to those struggles, right? But I guess we have to think about how wide are those guardrails and how much struggler, struggle are we experiencing? Because there is definite benefit to those struggles in education and we can't lose that. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, it can help increase the, the speed of learning and it promises those shorter feedback loops. Uh, we've talked about that. Can reduce remedial workload for educators. So, you know, we talked a little about that in that example of the, uh, the writing assignment. And it can hopefully, as we've said, increase the depth of analysis and help us focus more on higher levels uh, within Bloom's taxonomy. And, uh, and since you and I, Kevin, initially connected based on our advocacy of universal design for learning, uh, I wanted to share one of my favorite AI tools that's designed to benefit educators. So it's called Ludia and it's a UDL chatbot. Guides you through successive prompts with questions to help you think deeper and further about your design options, right? Because UDL ultimately is a design framework. And here's how the creators of uh, Ludia describe it. They say Ludia does not just give strategies, it provides context specific and culturally relevant options for instructional design that take all three principles of UDL into account. Ludia gives guidance about barriers that have not been considered and minimizes threats to unlearning that can lead to shifts in mindsets. Sounds great. I've actually played with Ludia I like it. I think it's a nice tool. Again, it doesn't give the answers, but it guides you through as a professional educator how to think about using UDL-based designs. So I, I definitely encourage people to uh, take a look, uh, provided link to the Learn More page and the Ludia chatbot itself, and you can do your own experimentation with it. Fabulous tool. Yeah. So, you know, if we're being mindful of the potential challenges, uh, right, with all those benefits, we still have to make sure that we're paying attention to those those challenges. Cost of implementation. This is one that I hadn't thought about, but I've heard more recently, and it makes perfect sense. There's an incredible energy draw and power requirement to run AI, right? There's huge processing required to do it. And I don't have any of those statistics, but I was even reading some more this morning and I was blown away by them thinking, wow, you know, this could have some some potentially unfortunate impacts on our, you know, ecology. So we do have to pay attention to that. And obviously the ethical considerations, I mentioned some of that earlier. Since so much of personalization on the internet today, we think about a lot of the personalization that we receive it's focused on consumer-based marketing. 
we have to, as individuals, especially as learners, we have to be cognizant of the human tendency to market and influence others. So as individuals, we have to be more adept. We have to be better learning consumers. And as developers of learning, we have to keep some of our marketing tendencies in check and ensure that we're designing our AI-supported learning solutions for the benefit of all learners, trying to engineer out those ethical or bias, uh, prejudice issues. Uh, Got to have a clear understanding of reality versus fiction and the ever-blurring lines between them as AI becomes more sophisticated. So, for example, there, there are some learning solutions that are piecing together human-recorded video segments. Uh, so they're pre-recorded, and they're piecing them together based on the student's interaction. So they're, they anticipate various scenarios and learning challenges that learners experience, then based on that tight feedback loop, the next video segment will play seemingly in perfect context. You know, So it might give the learner the illusion that, say, they were on a Zoom interaction, uh, and receiving response as if there was an educator there looking at them, observing them as an intelligent tutor. So we do have to make sure that as those lines between reality and fiction uh, start to blur, that in that particular case, they know that it wasn't a person who was right there. It was actually pre-recorded video, and, and they recognize that still a great benefit because it's helping them move through that process, but they, it's important to recognize that. And as I mentioned before, you know, current lack of uh, teacher training and support, uh, AI has, has the potential to support teachers in lesson planning, content creation, formative feedback generation, et cetera. But it's like having the cure for cancer and not knowing how to administer it if you're not trained. So, for AI to really have those benefits for those educators, there must be greater coordinated professional development efforts on helping teachers understand how to effectively use the tools. And there must be expert coaches embedded in those environments to provide that continuous support and professional development. Can't rely on each individual being an expert in leveraging AI. So there's got to be better integration of professional development into the education technology tools as well, so that as educators leverage those tools and students leverage those tools, the teachers better understand how to leverage the AI that's embedded within them. And, you know, the vision and capacity is real, but the execution of it, of AI benefiting education is not fully realized. So today there's plenty of experimenters and and as indicated by the technology adoption curve, we're at the early adopter stage and far from that early majority adopting these AI tools in any meaningful way. Uh, but, you know, we, we can't use that chasm that we hear of and that adoption curve as an issue. We've got to recognize that it's coming and we can use those for the benefit of the learning environment, the learning designs that we're creating. And then last but not least, data security concerns. Uh, student data privacy is a big one. The success of AI relies on massive amounts of data. And to truly personalize learning experiences, AI 
has to know a lot about us, our past experiences and our preferences. And that means AI will require a tremendous amount of data about us as individuals. And that means that the privacy practices associated with that will be increasingly important. So, you know, we've got to keep our eyes open. You know, the, the promise is there, but we've got to keep our eyes open and focus on those unique human qualities and that intelligence augmentation that uh, Chris Deedy uh, highlighted as that analogy between that relationship of Captain Picard and data. I mean, so much to that, Steve, that was that was really, really great. I really like that analogy about, you know, having the cure for cancer and not knowing how to administer it. I heard um, I was reading something earlier in the week over here in the UK context, and they said that you know, teachers need to develop their AI literacy. And I think that's exactly yeah. what you're you're saying there, isn't it? You know, we've 100%. got this wonderful tool, uh, but it's we've got to learn how to use it in the most effective way in various contexts, haven't we? The other thing oh. that really resonated with me was was around feedback. You know, I don't think we do enough from a design perspective to design in where feedback is and 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 how it's administered to learners at specific points not just when they've done a summative assessment for example but even uh, during learning activities in a in a given teaching session and if there are tools that can help us to to provide feedback and close that feedback loop as you've mentioned then i'm you know i'd be a massive advocate of that yeah and you more than anybody in your role with the university and you know promoting uh you know design uh, of learning experiences, leveraging universal design for learning, know the importance of that professional development role in how we cannot expect every professional educator to become proficient in AI on her own or his own. So there's gotta be scaffolded supports. And again, we have to think about those professional educators as learners in that context of how AI can be leveraged to make what their ultimate goals in their professional education role is so that they can be more effective in that intelligence augmentation model. Absolutely. Steve, it's been an absolute education. That's probably one of the most insightful presentations, talks, uh, I've I've listened to on, on AI, uh, certainly since the chat GPT boom. So thank you so much for, for providing some wonderful information. Yeah, my pleasure, Kevin. And, and you know, if, if nothing else, it just, again, further encouraged me to dive deeper and deeper into what is going on. And, you know, as I mentioned, back in 2003, when uh, I was working on that intelligent tutor application, I was thinking about that context. And then Later on, I didn't mention this, but when I was at another uh, education company, I was working with our uh, chief technology officer. I was the chief academic officer at that time. And we were researching personalized learning and thinking about these machine learning, natural language processing models that would help adapt. So I have been thinking about this a lot, but I, you know, I'm barely scratching the surface of what these people who are deep thinking about AI uh, and its capabilities are into. So as I mentioned toward the end, uh, it's our responsibility to scaffold 
understanding and uh, build professional development so that we can all better understand that intelligence intelligence augmentation opportunity. Absolutely. I mean, I, I couldn't agree more with, with all of that. Steve, thanks ever so much once again. Um, we're obviously recording this uh, fairly close to Christmas. So I'd like to wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I hope to see you soon. Yeah, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to you as well. And thanks again for having me on and uh, love everything that you're doing with the podcast and support it fully. Thanks, Steve. Cheers.